Singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by writing a review on iTunes, leaving a few comments on YouTube, or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Bob McDonald. Now, if you are a Canadian who's ever turned on their TV or their radio, there is no way in hell that you would not have heard or seen Bob McDonald before. For those of you, <laughs> exactly, Bob is uh, the national science correspondent for uh, the CBC and also the host of Quirks and Quarks, uh, uh, a very popular radio program, which I believe has about half a million uh, weekly viewers. So, without further ado, um, oh, by the way, also Bob is a very popular science writer, and I think he has like six uh, honorary doctorates by now. Uh, he's the recipient of the Order of Canada, and I can go and on and on and on, but let me just say thank you very much for being with us, Bob. My pleasure, Nicola. Uh, so, Bob, I know your time is very valuable, so let me just jump right in. And first of all, let me ask you this. How and why did you get to be interested in science? Because if anyone's ever seen any of your stuff, they would know that you're just hopelessly infected with endless curiosity and total passion and love for science. Well, I guess my love of science came from my childhood because I grew up in the space age. And I'm old enough to remember all of it. I remember Sputnik, the very first satellite going up, and the headlines in the newspapers talking about this thing that was going around the Earth, and everybody was afraid of it. I remember the first people in space watching the moon landings. So at that time, science was really being pushed in the schools because North America believed that if we were going to catch up to those uh, Soviets who were ahead at the time, that science and technology needed to be in the forefront. So I was experiencing it in school, and it, it always captivated me. Plus, there was a, a book that my mother brought home, and I think I have it here. Just uh, give me one second. I might have it in my in my briefcase. It's um, it was called The Planets, and she um, she brought it home for me. Oh, I don't have it within easy reach, but uh, it was just a book about the solar system, and I I didn't know anything about planets at the time. But it was a book of drawings showing what it would be like to be on the surface of different planets, like Mars and some of the moons of Jupiter, and looking at it. And, and I, I realized that there are places out there that are really different from this Earth, but they're just as real. And that the space program was starting and that we were going to go there. And that maybe by the time the 21st century happened and 2013 came around, I'd actually be one of the people there taking a holiday on Mars or vacationing on the moon. It hasn't quite happened yet, but it has been an exquisite privilege to me to watch all of that unfold and, and watch the science do it. So science has always captivated me, especially space science. Mm -hmm. So now, uh, after this book, I know that by education, you're not even a scientist, stri strictly speaking. I think you have a degree in philosophy, English, and theater. So <laughs> how did you end up? being a, the, the best-known uh, science correspondent and journalist in Canada? I'm actually a dropout. 
I did study uh, English and philosophy in university, and I did take theater, um, and I did take a little bit of astronomy, but <clears throat> I've never been very good at academics. Uh, I've, I've never been an A student. I found, um, I don't know, school was kind of tedious. I goofed around too much. I was spending too much time on the stage and not enough time in class, and I dropped out after second year, and I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And both of my parents are uneducated, so I don't have any positive role models to, uh, you know, further myself. And I actually started working construction and drove a truck and made billboards. In fact, a lot of the signs that you see when you drive along the lake shore, those big billboards that are up on top of buildings, those are the things that I worked on when I was in my uh, late teens. But thanks to some friends, uh, I was offered opportunities and, and my interest in science was always there, and I had a, an ability to perform in front of people from my theater background. And there came an opportunity to work at the Ontario Science Centre in Toronto. Now, this is in the early 1970s. And they changed their philosophy, because when the Science Centre first opened in 1969, they hired science students to do the shows for the public, to stand hair up with static electricity and operate this big laser and burn holes through bricks, freeze flowers and liquid nitrogen and all that. But they found that a lot of the students, while they knew their science, they couldn't perform very well in front of the public, and the Science Center is an entertainment facility. So I just happened along at the right time when they were looking for someone with an enthusiasm for science and an ability to communicate, and I got hired. And that really started my career in science communication because our job there was to make it fun, make it interesting, and make it understandable to young people. So that's where I really developed my ability to use everyday objects to try to communicate scientific principles. And then, during that same time, my dream was being fulfilled in the mid-1970s. NASA began sending robots out to the planets. So we had Viking that landed on Mars in 1976. And then the remarkable Voyager project that went right across our solar system that went to the four largest planets that we have, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Well, I thought this was fabulous that we were actually going to these worlds that I dreamed about as a kid. So <laughs> I wrote myself a letter to NASA using my uh, Ontario Science Center stationery saying, uh, please give this guy a press pass. <laughs> but I bought a ticket to California, and I went there when they were doing these missions. And they got me in. They gave me a, a badge so I could in like a reporter. So there I was witnessing the exploration of our solar system. And then when I come back to Canada, there were very few Canadians down there watching this. The news on television and radio would call up the Science Center and say, can somebody come and talk about this thing in space? And I go, yeah, I can do that. And every time I did, they went, wow, you're really good. Do you want to come back? I said, okay. So then I became a science guy on television. So that's the story of my life. I, I don't have a science degree. I did not go to broadcast school. I did not get taught how to do all of these things. I was in the right place at the right time. And when opportunities came along, even though I hadn't done those things before, I always said yes and uh, just jumped into the fire. So that's how I got to be where I am. That's that's absolutely fascinating, Bob. I wasn't aware of that part of your story, and and it's very inspiring too because it it, it goes along a line that I always try to tell young students that I meet too is that it doesn't matter what kind of grade you got in school in biology or whatever, you can still do anything, regardless of that grade. And somebody and, and maybe you came up with a conclusion: oh, I'm not good at biology, or oh, I'm not good in physics. You can still be the, not good. You can be great and amazing only if you decide and you have a passion for it. 
That's right. And uh, I used to hide that story. I, I didn't like to tell it because I was kind of embarrassed about it. And I also come from, well, rather humble roots. And I, I, I grew up feeling that I'm not good enough because um, we were kind of lower down on the social scale. And um, so I, I've always fought with that. But I've also found that if you if you just really want to do something and you see an opportunity to try to do it, if you jump at the at the chance, you will get scared because you're trying something you've never done before and you may not think that you're good enough to do it. But you work really hard when you're scared. And you work really hard when you don't think you're good enough because you, you work harder to be as good as everybody else. And in some ways, that's actually helped me. Mm -hmm. And uh, But once I got my first honorary doctorate from the University of Guelph, uh, it was a very emotional thing for me because here was a university honoring me after I had dropped out of university. Mm -hmm. And um, so now I'm not afraid to tell that story. And in fact, um, at, my, um, at, at my graduation, when I gave the, uh, the, this, this convocation speech, I told that story, and that was the first time that I told it in public. And I told about the three things that you need to do when you really want to do something new is first say yes, you will get scared, and you think, oh, my God, that's so big. How am I going to do this? The second step is think about the first thing you need to do, like what do you need to do first to get started and do that. And then once you do that, the next step will become obvious and do that. And just keep going step by step. And the third thing is finish it. Finish what you start. Lots of people think about, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book or I'm, I'm going to do this or do whatever. And they might get started, but then as soon as it gets hard, they back out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets hard, but if you just finish it, it's amazing how well producers, editors, any kind of boss likes you because you got it done. It may not be the best that's ever done. It, it'll probably not be the best that you've ever done, but at least you got it done. Nobody likes somebody who, who doesn't finish what they do. And uh, that's that's been my secret in life is finish what I start regardless. That's some fantastic advice. Um, so, Bob, it seems that you got inspired by many of the same things that I got inspired by. So I was a very young kid. I was born in 1976, by the way, in Bulgaria, and that's where I spent most of my time. So across the Iron Curtain at the time where we were very proud of, you know, the Eastern Bloc's, you know, accomplishments in space and so on. But one of the things that managed to pass through the, the Iron Curtain was a documentary by Carl Sagan called Cosmos. And I was seven or eight years old when I watched it for the first time on TV, and it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind. I was watching it on a black and white TV at home in the 1980s, and it totally blew my mind. Well, I've had some experiences with uh, Cosmos and Carl Sagan on, on two different fronts. Um, <clears throat> the artist who uh, was the chief artist for that television series, and also did Carl Sagan's uh, books, the covers for his books. His name is John Lomberg, and John and I actually lived together in Toronto when I lived there in the 1970s. In fact, uh, right here on my wall, I just got it, you can probably hardly even see it back there. That's one of John's paintings. It's ballooning on Mars. John does uh, space art, and it was John who actually told me about the Voyager launch that was going not only to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, but it was going to leave our solar system altogether. And Carl Sagan had gathered a group of people together, including John, to put a gold record on the side of the spacecraft 
to be a message to aliens in case it's ever found in the far distant future. It'll take millions of years before that happens, but there have only been four man-made objects to ever leave our solar system. Two of them were called Voyager, and two of them were called Pioneer that went, went ahead. Uh, there's another one now called Messenger that's on its way to Pluto, or not Messenger, uh, New Horizons that's on its way to Pluto, that'll do it. But most of our spacecraft have all remained somewhere around the Earth or the Moon or the Sun. These are going to actually leave because of the gravity of Jupiter. So John said, why don't you come down to the launch? Because uh, he was going to be there. So I got on my motorcycle <laughs> and drove from Toronto down to Cape Kennedy and met John and Carl Sagan there. And he was, uh, he was there. And we went to the launch of this. Now, the launch of a, a robot into space doesn't get the kind of attention that a space shuttle or a, or a manned rocket does. Hardly anybody's there. Usually it's just the scientists that work on it. Mm -hmm. So we were a very small group that went there and sat up on the bleachers. So I'm sitting there with Carl Sagan, Frank Drake, who put the first radio message out into space for anybody who might want to. And the Drake he was equation. Also on the and, uh, and John. So I was with these people that had put this message on the spacecraft. And before it left, we were looking way off in the distance, and you just see a, a shiny missile standing up. It's an ICBM, actually. It didn't look very big. And John said to me, boy, it sure doesn't look like a starship. <laughs> but it was. It was a starship. And then the thing blasts off, and the robots go a lot faster than a shuttle. Uh, a shuttle has to take its time because it's got people in it, so they can't accelerate too fast. But the unmanned ones, they take off, and it's like, <laughs> holy cow. It was gone. And by 6 o'clock that night, it was past the moon. Wow. And when it was out of sight, it only took about 20 seconds for the thing to be out of sight. Carl Sagan was just in front of me, and he turned around, and there were tears running down his face. My goodness. And he said, we sent a spaceship to the stars. And it was a very powerful moment for all of us to realize that this thing that we had sent up will never, ever be seen again by human beings. And maybe one day, the next eyes or whatever photoreceptors look at it will be on an alien being who will be seeing this thing trying to figure out where it came from. And as we went home, back to our hotel, we were all really quiet in the van because we were thinking about this thing that we'd sent out that's going to last, some people say uh, 10 million years, some people say 50 million years, some even think 100 million because there's no corrosion in space. There's almost none once yeah. you get away from the stars. So we thought about that. The Earth is going to change in that time. Humanity may completely extinguish itself. The continents are going to move. The, the Earth will change its face. Ice ages are going to come, and that thing's still going to be out there. And it was a very sobering moment and, and a very proud moment, I felt, for humanity that we'd actually done that. So that was my first meeting with Carl Sagan, and I was very fortunate to meet him on a number of occasions during those encounters when we went to those planets and we all gathered in Pasadena, California, where they control the robots, to see brand new worlds for the very first time. It was neat to share that with him. That's an absolutely amazing story. By the way, as a funny side note, uh, that was a big pride for Bulgaria at the time, too, because one of those songs that was placed on, those, uh, on that golden plate was a Bulgarian folk song from the you know, 19th century that was chosen. You know, they had Beethoven, Mozart, and so on. One of those songs was a Bulgarian folk song. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great. So, yeah, there's yeah, 112 so, minutes of music on it. Absolutely, yeah. So that was big for us too, by <laughs> the way. But uh, let me uh, connect this back on topic here. Uh, so 
Is Carl Sagan your favorite scientist, or is there someone else? <laughs> Carl Sagan inspired me the way he inspired just about everyone who heard him. And what he had, besides being very eloquent in the way he spoke and very clear in the way he spoke and very passionate about his subject, he had a way of, of taking you somewhere. So if you asked him about Mars, which I did one time when we were uh, <clears throat> following the Viking mission, he, he wouldn't tell you about how far away it is from the sun, its atmospheric composition, the size of the planet. He wouldn't tell you that. He'd say, well, if you stood there, the ground would be very dusty, like a desert, and it'd be cold. It'd be about 20 below. It'd be like a Canadian winter. <laughs> and uh, the sky would be pink around you, not blue. And it might fade to, to sort of a, a black overhead because the air is so thin. It'd be very quiet because thin air doesn't carry sound very much, very well. That's what he would do. He would take you there. He had that ability to remove you from our normal environment and take you to other worlds. And I try to emulate that uh, in what I do. So my favorite sign, I mean, I've, I've interviewed more than 7,000 scientists in my, just at, at Quirks and Quarks over the last 20 years. And I, I meet amazing scientists every, <laughs> every day almost. But Carl Sagan is certainly one of the top people that I've met in my life. Unbelievable. I've interviewed about 80 so far, so you've, you've beat me by a factor of a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let me ask you this, though. Uh, I know Carl Sagan was inspired very much by reading science fiction when he was a young boy, especially about Mars. So uh, what about science fiction? Did it play any role for you? And if it did, uh, what was the book? Who was the author? <laughs> Uh, yes, it did, and uh, I think science fiction is very, very important because the, uh, the the writers take us into the future where we need to be and, and explore wild ideas. When I was a kid, uh, I got a, a series of books called Tom Corbett Space Cadet, <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, based on the Hardy Boys and all you know the, the Drew Girl, whatever. It was a series, but it was about young boys and a space academy in the future. And uh, at that time, they thought that all the planets were habitable. So there was a guy from Jupiter, there was a guy from Venus and all this. And it was just their adventures of going through academy and then going through the solar system. Uh, they crash-landed on Mars on the desert, and they had to hike to a canal, make a raft and take a canal to a city, because we thought there were canals on Mars yes, at that time. Yes, yes. So that inspired me a lot. I was also inspired by uh, science fiction on television. Of course, uh, Star Trek and all the space movies and science fiction movies and monster movies as well, mm -hmm. even though they scared the pants off me. So I, th I think it's really important. I had an interesting experience during one of the missions to Saturn as we were looking at these brand new pictures of Saturn's rings taken by Voyager. And when you get up close to them, they look like, um, like a vinyl record. They're, they, they have grooves. There's, there's thousands and thousands of rings and rings and rings and rings. Mm -hmm. and um, we were just looking at these pictures, and I was sitting by this guy that I didn't know, and I said, uh, so what do you think of the, of the images? And, and he said, well, the wheels are turning for me. And I said, really, who are you? He said, I'm Larry Niven. Now, Larry Niven is one of the big science fiction writers around right now. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about stories. And sure enough, a few years later, he put out a novel where there was a spaceship of aliens hiding within the rings of Saturn. And uh, that, that was where the story started. So we need 
the science fiction writers to get us out into the future. And uh, a writer that I still read today is a Canadian writer, uh, Robert uh, Robert Sawyer. Robert J. Sawyer. And uh, he's, uh, he, he's very, very smart. I know Rob quite well, and he really knows his science. So he takes good science and just puts it a little bit into the future. And I was also inspired by Arthur C. Clarke because he had a sense of realism. Uh, he did a wonderful story called Islands in the Sky, which was about a, a young kid who wins a contest, I think, on the back of a cereal box to go up to the space station and uh, see how it works. And, and I, I just fell right into it. It was just a, a great story. So, yes, uh, science fiction has been very important to me, and I still read it. Robert J. Sawyer was one of the, those 80 people that I've interviewed on this show, and he's, by the way, one of my favorites, too. Um, so uh, let, me, uh, let me ask you this, though a little bit of a different sort of a direction to our conversation here. Um, what do you think is the relationship between science and religion? Because I get a lot of sort of attacks, uh, if you will, from religious people, both for my podcast and for my blog and stuff like that. What do you think is the proper position of religion? Are you re First of all, let's start like this. I am, as a disclaimer, 100% atheist myself. So... That's just, uh, I want to be straightforward with you. So, are you religious in any way, and what do you think is the proper association between these two? Yeah, that's, that's a really important issue. <clears throat> I was raised in a Catholic family, so I went through the whole thing of going to Catholic schools right up until middle high school, then I went to public school after that. And, uh, you know, my family went to church and did all of the things that Catholics do, uh, but and in my teens, I even uh, was up on the altar myself uh, doing folk masses. We had I play a little bit of guitar, and they did um, musical thing. It was just a, an opportunity to sing really and have an, a captive audience. <laughs> but I I backed away from that. Um, I found that it was a little narrow-minded, and I'm not an atheist. I think I'd be closer to an agnostic. Uh, I'm kind of open-minded, and I think that. When it comes to science and religion, I see them as two different ways of looking at the universe. The science is a tool that we have. It's the best tool we have to ask the question, how does it work? So science asks how. It does not ask the question why. It's always how. And that's what we're doing, and there's still a whole lot we don't know. In fact, we think we're so smart. Here in the 21st century, 95% of the universe is still missing. It's the dark energy and the dark matter. We haven't got a clue what it is. So we still have a long way to go in that how-does-it-work end. Mm -hmm. Religion can say, well, why are we here? And, and, and why is it so beautiful? Well, if you want to have faith, that's fine. Anyone is entitled to their faith. If you want to believe it's a creator or God or Buddha or whomever, that's your privilege to do that. Mm -hmm. And they don't need to conflict with each other. I see the, the why as appreciating the splendor of it. And scientists do that, too. I mean, like, look at those pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. They're drop-dead gorgeous. They're works of art. And They're mesmerizing. So science, science does that. But yeah. that, that doesn't prove that there's a God. It's just that the universe is very beautiful. Yeah. But if you want to then step away from the science and say, well, because it's so beautiful, I believe in there that there's a God, well, that's your right to do that. Mm -hmm. Where I have trouble is where people want to say, okay, the science is wrong, God is right. And, and it's, it's not right like that. Science is not trying to disprove God. Science is simply trying to say 
how what the mechanics of the universe are, but I'm I'm seeing cases of fundamentalists yeah. who are trying to put doubt into Darwin's theory of evolution yeah. and uh, the Big Bang theory, and it it bothers me because all they're saying is I don't believe it. There's no counter yeah. evidence in science. If you want to say I don't believe it, you're entitled to do that, but you have to come up with an alternate theory. There yeah. isn't. Yeah. And the the head of the Skeptic Society in the United States, and his name escapes me at the moment, but he said Michael a wonderful Michael Shermer, thing. he's been a guest yeah. on my show. Yeah. Well, then you probably heard him say, when uh, when a scientist says, I don't know, that's when the investigation begins. And when a creationist says, God did it, that's when the investigation ends. Stop. Because yeah. you've got your answer. Yeah. So I, I like that approach. So To me, they're, they're parallel. They, sh they don't need to conflict, and it, it bothers me when they do. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, so you very much had, of course, the scientific approach, which is just like me, which is in, in, in essence, follow the evidence no matter where it takes you. And sure. if your starting hypothesis turns out to be wrong, then you come up with a better hypothesis until it squares with the evidence that you've got gathered. And that's what it is all about, well, we, I think. We've, we've got 2,500 years of that system working very well. Yeah. And there's a huge pyramid of knowledge that we're standing on top of right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we're still using Euclidean mathematics in some of our work. We're still using Newtonian physics. Absolutely. And we're still, you know, yeah. those, those principles are still there. Archimedes, you know, his principle is still at work yeah. in our skyscrapers. So it's, it, it works. It's a system that works, but it's open-ended and it's open-minded. That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And we it's evolving. Assume know everything. Surprise is, is more interesting than, than what we know. So let me ask you this then. You said 2,500 years. So do you believe that we are making huge progress? Because some people would say, well, if you look at humanity, you know, let's say ancient Athens, right? The ancient Greeks, we don't know much more than what they did. We're not much better off than they were. Nothing's really fundamental has changed. Somewhere. Oh, come on. Come on. Give me a break. Give me a break. Are you kidding Come on, you've got a phone that that can act as a as a camera that can talk to satellites in space and and communicate with anyone in the world instantly with video. Look what we're doing right now on Skype, and we're at opposite ends of the country. Look what we know about the worlds. We've been to other other worlds. We've landed on them. We have cars driving around on Mars right now. We have people who've walked on the moon. We we've got telescopes that are out to the edge of the universe and the back back in time. The ancients were great. But what they saw was from the Earth. They, they, they had an Earth-centric view of the universe, which is not really true. Because if you think about the way you see the world through your five senses, it's wrong. The world looks flat. It looks like it's not moving. It looks immovable. And the sky looks like a big dome that goes over our head that rotates. Half of it's blue with the sun on it, and half of it's black with the moon and the stars on it. And that was a perfectly valid model a couple of thousand years ago. And since then, we've learned that we're living on a ball that moves, that spins, that's moving around the sun, that's moving around the galaxy, that's part of an expanding universe. That is a huge leap in thought. And we understand biology down to, down to molecules. And we understand atoms down to, to quarks. That, that's amazing what we've done. We've, we've looked out to the very far, and we've looked down to the, the very small, and we're on the verge of putting it all together into one big theory that tries to describe the whole thing. The ancients were nowhere near that. They were at the basic, sure, this is how a lever works, and here's the constellations, and I'll tell you when the next eclipse is going to be, and I'm pretty good at mathematics, but they, have, they were nowhere near where we are today. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that we still do, that they did, is that we still 
and this bothers me a lot, we still spend most of our money and our highest technology developing better ways to kill each other. Yeah. And, and it, it still disturbs me that our highest science and technology goes towards weapons. And that has been true throughout all of human history. And I guess we just have to put up with that. Mm-hmm. And let's hope it doesn't, you know, end up destroying our whole civilization. By the way, let me grab this thought and ask you, do you think that that could be an explanation about the Fermi paradox, for example, that when civilizations reach a certain level of powerful development where they are already capable to destroy themselves, many of them probably do, and that perhaps is a way of somewhat explaining the Fermi paradox? Well... We've seen cases in the past of civilizations that have outstripped their own resources. Easter Island uh, used to be lush, mm-hmm. and the people there uh, started burning wood, and their civilization was doing quite well until they ran out of wood. And then their civilization collapsed. The Mayans did the same thing. Everybody thinks that the Spanish conquered the Mayans. They didn't. The Mayans were already in decline by the, the time the Spanish got there because their cities were getting so large I mean, the, the city of, um, uh, I think it's Cobalt in, in Mexico now, it was once the size of Manhattan. I mean, there, there were giant cities in Central America, and as the populations went up, they were eating up the resources around it, so they had to go further and farther to get those resources, and then, you know, the, the civilization starts to collapse, and the only people who survive who are there today are the farmers who are up in the mountains. Uh, We've seen the same thing with the Romans, where the resources get further and further away, too much money spent on the military, too high taxes. Uh You know, we've seen this again and again and again, and that's what does it to us. We we use up our resources. And yes, I'm concerned today that that's exactly what we're doing. We're Uh eating and we're burning everything in sight. And in the meantime, we've gone up to, where are we now, 8 billion? Is that how many people are up? I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, It's... um, we're, we're just overpopulated and consuming far too much, and that's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So will we repeat that process, or are we smart enough to figure out how to, how to deal with a warm world with limited resources? I hope we are. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Uh, one sort of a optimistic take on where we are at right now and about our future is the, the, sort of the whole idea of the technological singularity. Um, you know, the biggest, um, best-known proponent is, of course, Ray Kurzweil. Uh, actually, a couple of summers ago, I had the amazing opportunity to go and live on NASA's campus in Ames, California, for 10 weeks uh, as a member of Singularity University at the time, uh, which was, again, another life-changing event for me. Uh, but What's your take on the whole technological singularity idea on, you know, Moore's law, the law of accelerating returns, the fact that, you know, we are moving along an exponential curve of development with information technology and everything around us is becoming information, including things like biology and so on? Well, I just finished doing an interview earlier today with a scientist who managed to code digital information on DNA. And... uh the reason they're doing that is because DNA will last for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So you could get all of the information that we currently have uh, on, on Earth and probably the rest of the universe in one little tube of dust, and it can, it, they can even read it. So, yes, we are uh, heading towards that direction. But the, 
the thing with any kind of technology, it's not the technology itself. It's how you use it that's important. So a kitchen knife can make you dinner, but it can also kill somebody. Mm -hmm. And we have a responsibility to use our technology wisely and to use it in a way that's beneficial. So when we first developed cars, they were great. They were a terrific boom to society, boosted the economy, allowed the transportation of food and people all over the world. That's great. But at the beginning, we didn't think about what was coming out of the tailpipe and what it was doing to the atmosphere. Now we know that. So that technology has to evolve into something that doesn't have the side effect of warming the planet. And we're in the process of doing that. I don't think we're doing it quickly enough, but we can engineer, re-engineer. So I believe in evolution rather than revolution. Revolution is when you take a situation like we're in right now and say, oh, this is really horrible. We got, got to get rid of those evil oil people. We got to get rid of those evil politicians and take over everything. Well, whenever that happens, um, there's usually chaos afterwards we're and a lot of backwards. people get hurt. But evolution is where you take what you have, the ability to move from here to there, the ability to communicate, whatever the technology is, and you look at it and you say, is that the best way to do that? And can we improve it? Can we make it sustainable? Can we make it something that will not leave such a large footprint? And most of the technology that we have today, uh, not just transportation, but a, a lot of the technology that we have, we throw away more than we use. We're inefficient with it. Yeah. Well, let's make efficiency a priority, high efficiency. We have cars right now that are about 20% efficient. That's stupid. Yeah. They're 80% inefficient. So let's make them 80% efficient <laughs> instead and only throw away 20%. Well, the idea is when you have nanofabs and things like that which bring, which produce stuff from the ground up one molecule at a time, right? Then we wouldn't have that wastage, you know, incredible yep. amounts of wastage to produce oil, for example, just for fuel for the cars, let alone the fact that the engine is only like, you know, 20, 30% efficient, right. have you said. Right. right. So, and, and the idea is, of course, when we develop artificial intelligence, we would be able to run the whole system much more efficiently with a lot more uh, better utilization of resources, better allocation of resources, a lot less leakage and loss of energy. Right. So what's your take? Well, I'm sure we can do all of those things, but there's another factor that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the economic model. Mm -hmm. The economic models that we use right now are all based on growth. They're all based on getting richer, getting bigger, uh, getting fatter. And that incurred when people get well-fed and happy and comfortable and rich, they want to have more children, and that increases the population. So we can't continue to, to, to grow. You know, it just you just can't keep doing that. And yet that's what our economy is encouraging. And I don't know how you turn that beast around because it's so big and it's so powerful and it affects so many of our lives, including political lives, that I, I don't know how you flatten that. I'll that, make a uh, suggestion. Talk about exponential growth. I'll make a suggestion. For example, right now our economy is based on scarcity, right? That's the, the very, very foundation of the science of economics. You know, the best allocation of resources in the condition of scarcity. Now, if we live in a material world, obviously we live in a world of scarcity. But if we shift and we start living in a digital world where material objects are dematerialized and instead become information objects, like, for example, books and music have become already, then instead of an environment of scarcity, we start living in an environment of abundance. And then 
you know, if, if, if I give you my car, I don't have a car right now because it's a material object, but if I send you an email, I haven't lost anything because it's information, and that turns the whole economic system, I believe, upside down. And, and perhaps, uh, and then it's not going to be a zero-sum game anymore. It's going to be one of constant abundance. But, but that leads me to another crazy question, which is perhaps um, the best way to realize that economy and that next take that next step is what some people have called for, and that is namely mind uploading. That is living in a digital world. That is dematerializing ourselves. And some people argue that that's perhaps the best way we can, you know, defeat things like cancer, aging, and eventually death. Um, that's that utopian idea of living forever has been around in so many forms for so many centuries. You know, we we always want to live forever. I don't know if I want to live as a as a computer program. I don't know if I want to download myself. It's great fodder for science fiction, and I know Ray Kurzweil wants to do that. Yes. I just watched recently the uh, Star Trek episode "Ship in a Bottle," where uh, Moriarty, uh, Sherlock Holmes' nemesis, uh, appears to walk out of the holodeck. Yeah, and uh, at the end of it, he he ends up he's a holodeck program, but he's trapped in there, and he wants. To, uh, I I just don't know if I would want to be living in a in a virtual world. Uh, as much as I love technology and all that, I really like going out and smelling the flowers and walking in the woods. I live on the west coast now, and uh, just being outside. This thing called reality, I really like it, mm -hmm. and uh, I I just don't think that that's going to be the answer to our our problems and. Trying to put the human mind into a machine is so far beyond us right now because there's no machine like it. Sure, well, just, just, today, just today, the European Union announced funding for Henry Macram's Blue Brain Project, which right. is about a billion dollars, and he's trying to create whole brain simulation. Well, one of the people I've interviewed on my show is Dr. Randall Kuhne, who said that mind uploading uh, is not science fiction anymore, and he works on whole brain emulation. Then we have people like Demetra Motha from IBM Synapse Project, which is funded by DARPA, who are trying to do that. Just yesterday, or last week, I interviewed Professor Chris Elliott-Smith at University of Waterloo on their SPAWN project. There's so many people working on it. Yes, there are. And uh, we'll be able to construct a machine that has as many neural connections as we do, however, however many trillion there are. But what about will? What about spirit? What about uh, independence? What about identity? You know, it, when when um, Gary Kasparov, the uh, chess <laughs> player, was beaten by Deep Blue, the IBM computer in chess, one of the best comments that came out of that was, yes, the computer won chess, but did it appreciate winning? No. <laughs> I no, haven't heard that one. That's hilarious. It didn't appreciate winning. Because to appreciate something, you've got to be human. And in the same way that, that Data in Star Trek is a wonderful character, but he never had a sense of humor. He couldn't tell a joke. Because to do that, you need to have a, a, a way of, of thinking. So to put to emulate the human brain, sure. To emulate the mind... I think there's a whole other level there that, that we're not even close to yet because we don't even know where the mind is. So Bob, I, I'd I, like, I think we have a long way to go there. Yeah, Bob, I'd like to talk to you about that 
forever, uh, practically, <laughs> but I know you're very tight on time, and we only have another minute or two. So let me ask you my two last questions that I always ask of guests on my show. And the first one is, where can people find more about you and your work? Well, you can go to our website at uh, cbc.ca slash quirks, uh, where I'm the host of Quirks and Quarks. There's a bio on me uh, there. You can Google me as well. There's a, there's a Wikipedia site to find out a bit. I haven't really published a lot of stuff on, on me. Um, I've done a couple of books. I'm working on another one right now. But uh, probably go to the Quirks and Quarks site, and, and you'll find Quirks and Quarks a really interesting program because it's, it's archived, and there's some really great science there. Yeah, so that's, I'm a that's, big that's, fan. I'm a big fan of the program. And now the last question is this. If people were to take a single message from this interview with you today, what would you like that to be? Follow your dreams. Follow your dreams. And don't be afraid to follow your dreams and be patient about it. It might take longer than you think, but dreams are free. They're a free gift from the universe. And you know from a very young age what inspires you and what doesn't. You follow those. Maybe you want to go to space. You might not end up being an astronaut, but you might end up working on a, on a space program as an engineer or a medical person or, or something else in the space program. Um, I, my success is simply by following what I was interested in. I would see something and say, wow, I'd really like to do that. Or if somebody asked me, would you really like to do this? And I'd say, yeah, that looks like fun. Then I'd go for it, even though I wasn't qualified to do it. I've never been qualified to do what I do. But I, I followed it and worked really hard, and I'm not afraid to ask for help. You'd be surprised. People will help you if you just ask. So follow your dreams. If it can happen to somebody like me from a, a small town with no privileges and a, a poor family, it can happen to anybody. Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic message. And as a co confirmation, I just want to say I met Dan Barry, who is a, a NASA astronaut, when I was there. And he had to apply 13 times for NASA. 13 times before he actually became an astronaut. So yeah. that, that's another evidence that I, I, I entirely agree with that, and there's so many people who would support oh, yeah. that. Well, you look at our Canadian astronaut, Chris Hadfield, who's on the International Space Station right now. Yeah. He watched them land on the moon in 1969, just like you and I did, and he said, I want to do that. And he devoted his entire life taking step by step by step to get there. Look where he is now. See, he did it too. Another guy from a small town in Ontario. Unbelievable, yes indeed. Well, Bob McDonald, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure talking to you, Nicola. Thanks.